Our church was started in what we might call the heady days of the church growth movement. When I joined this church, George Barna was just getting his blood up and Willow Creek was becoming a rising international prominence and positioning itself as a model for local churches. For the first 10 to 12 years of pastoral ministry, the prevailing winds blew toward building megachurches by application of business methods. So churches were marketed to move the product of the gospel that would be calibrated to the felt needs of so-called seekers. It always seemed to me that so many of those seekers were really just disgruntled church members or bored Christians. But that was the idea, and with, as with discount retailing, costs were low and the consumer was king. The cost of discipleship was systematically downgraded in short sermons peppered with feel-good stories and laced with self-help psychobabble, and it was all the rage. And ministries focused on numerical growth at almost all cost, and much of it through entertainment evangelism, which sent the wrong message right out of the gate. So here is our little church. And the orientation that we had a church as a church from the very start was to begin with the New Testament vision. To not ask what the culture was saying as such, but to see what Jesus was saying, what He wanted His church to be, and to conform our life and ministry to that vision. And so we saw there ideas such as covenantal membership, accountability to one another. We saw there the idea of the exercise of church discipline when that was necessary that we might remain a pure church. We saw the value, the purpose, the importance of biblically rooted messages that took some time to divulge of doctrinal teaching. And all of this in absolutely inferior buildings. <laughs> That's where we were. And it was all against the grain. And then I remember one day, and I really felt isolated in more ways than one, but I really felt isolated in this larger movement of the church growth movement. I read one day, and the phrase was actually used, of the killing fields. And what the author was saying was that there were churches just like ours. He described our church and he said they should die. They should be killed because if they're not killed, and which what that really meant was nobody was going to get shot or anything, what it meant was that all of our people were supposed to go to bigger churches. And if they'd go to really big, large churches, then the church of Jesus Christ would actually affect the American culture. But these little insignificant churches that have all of this wrong need to be killed. It's a little discouraging. We were being told that at the very heart of this ministry was irrelevance to the larger culture and the needs of the time and the advance of the cause of Christ. Well, that market-driven, seeker-sensitive approach grew kind of stale over time. 
Although almost all of the error has leached into the bloodstream of many local churches these days, but enter in more recent days the emergent church, which maybe doesn't have much of a force at this point, but it's been a a recent trend and a reactionary movement that looked at much of what was wrong in the megachurch movement, in the church growth movement as it was called, and, and reacted against it. The problem was it was every bit as sensitive to the market, it's just that the market had changed. And so the particular focus, and I remember this, the accounts in the church growth mo- movement, one author actually said, think about who you want to go on vacation with. Imagine those people and then go reach them. That was actually a strategy. Who's just like you? That's who your church should reach. Well, the emergent church has reacted against that in some sense, but it's just that the clientele has changed. And the emphasis now is very much on the young, urban, technologically astute, hip to the culture, and understanding flawed authority. That's the new market of sorts. And emergent churches disapprove, and rightly so, of the individualism and the anonymity of the megachurch where you just slip in and no one really knows who you are and you consume what the church provides. There's been a reaction against that, and rightfully so. The emergent church is also very averse to the lack of authenticity and community in the megachurches. But as the church growth movement had its ears tuned to materialism and people's wants, the emergent church perks its ears to pluralism and multi-perspectivalism and communalism with a systemic aversion to biblical and local church authority. The common theme, it seems to me, is that the church starts with the culture and asks, how may we touch this culture? And then goes to work with an ear tuned to the Bible to make sure it's not doing anything wrong. What a joy it has been in recent years. And I, it just, it, it, as, as you've been in a spot for a while, you see some of these changes and there's been a new wind that's blown in. There's been a refreshing, a resurgence of local churches saying, let's not start with the culture and give people what they want. Let's not start with the people who seem to see things a certain way and market things to them, but rather, let's start with the New Testament. And let's discern what God is saying in His Word, Jesus saved the church to be. It's exciting to see churches that are responding to that. Now let's remember, in this resurgence, we are a distinct minority. But at least there's some friends around now. I feel so differently today than I did 20 years ago or so. It's a joy to see biblically-minded churches who are pushing back against the orientation that we start with the culture, we start with where people are, we start with adjusting ourselves to this world and to say, let's be the church Christ wants us to be. But from our inception, that's what we've sought to do as a church, to start with the New Testament vision of what the local church should be and then to conform our life and ministry to that vision. Let me say it, we fall short We have a lot to learn. But I believe most people who identify with this church do so in large measure 
because of our commitment to practice the biblical pattern of local church ministry with all of our failures and weaknesses. We believe that Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. It belongs to Him. It is not up to us to define how it should look without going first and asking Him how it should look. And we believe that through His apostles, Jesus articulated the kind of life in community He wants us to display for the glory of His name and for the salvation of His people. Perhaps our gravest danger then as a church, as we have grown and God has been merciful to us through the years, our danger may not be failing to understand the doctrine of the local church, but rather in assuming this knowledge. And maybe even growing lukewarm in our affections to what Christ is doing to save a people for His name. So I plan to preach a series of sermons by God's grace for several weeks on this topic of the local church. And as I do so, I recognize, as we all do, this is a very familiar topic for us, as it should be. But it's my earnest hope that this series will help us to grow deeper and stabilize, to send down life-feeding roots into the soil of what the New Testament says regarding the purpose for which Christ saved us and united us as His body. My hope is that this series will profit the future health of our life together as a local church. I, I have no doubt that much of what is said will be common, understood, fully perceived by us. But I think, too, there will be some moments of conviction, I trust for every one of us, some moments of rejoicing as we celebrate what Christ is doing and give thanks to Him for the church. And I'm asking you at the start of this whole process to make it this, to make it a labor of love in defense of the truth of God's Word. So that together we are bringing our minds together that we might be able to teach and instruct one another and others who come into our assembly to know what the local church is meant to be and to be able to uphold that truth and encourage others along the way. As we continue to grow in our understanding of Jesus' vision for the local church and as we continue to seek to conform our life as a local church to that New Testament pattern, I think it's only fitting that we begin the series with the birth of the local church. We could devote several weeks to the birth of the church, but I'm going to narrow to one primary emphasis, which we'll bring out uh, toward the end of the sermon. But at this point, we should understand that the birth of the church is recorded in Acts chapter 2, as was read to us earlier. Some would believe that the church began in the Garden of Eden. There's a theological reason for that. And others would believe that the church began in John 20 when Jesus breathed the Spirit on the disciples. I think there is good reason to believe that the church of Jesus Christ began at the festival of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. If you'd like, you could turn to Ephesians 1 and let me just point out Briefly, we'll come back to Acts 2 in a moment, but in Ephesians chapter 1, notice what Paul writes concerning the church. He said, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, verse 18 of Ephesians 1, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Simply put, you have been saved. You have been gloriously converted and given new life, and this rests on Jesus' death and His ascension into the heavenly places. Verse 20. Verse 21. He's seated at the right hand of God far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things, that is, the Father put all things under the Son's feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So I would see from this passage that chronologically speaking, Jesus did not need to rise and ascend to earn his headship over the church, but chronologically speaking, his headship over the church comes after his resurrection and ascension. Secondly, Jesus promised his followers that he would baptize them with the Spirit after his departure into heaven. John 14 through 16 bring that out. And this baptism, what does it do? A lot of things, but one thing that he says it will do and that Ephesians brings out in chapter 2 is that it will unite Jew and Gentile in one body. Now you can look back historically and you will find no body in which Jews and Gentiles were united in God prior to the festival of Pentecost. There isn't one. And so for these reasons, I believe that Acts 2 records the birth of the church. God is obviously has His people through the ages. He is obviously doing a saving work. But the church as we understand it, this incorporation of Jew and Gentile in Christ, necessitates the death, resurrection, and ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit by Jesus Christ. So as we come to the book of Acts, if you'll turn there to Acts chapter 1, Since we're talking age here, I guess i got to say, or scroll there now, don't I? <laughs> if you get, we'll just keep saying turn, but get to Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. Acts 1 verse 4, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This, of course, is in that interim between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension. He's on earth and He speaks to His disciples and says, Await the baptism of the Spirit that John talked about. Go to Jerusalem. It will come, and it will come soon. Not many days from now. So chapter 2 of the book of Acts, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, these disciples, 120 of them we learn, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I don't really think there's any capacity for us to put ourselves in the situation and understand it very well. It's, it's, it's a weird thing going on here. But the description is there, and here's the significance, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that the same thing as he talked about in chapter 1? The baptism of the Spirit will come. I believe that it is. We should not take filling here to be distinctive as it will become later in the New Testament text where there's the distinction between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, for instance. Here, the filling of the Spirit is this baptism of the Spirit. Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, and right here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, Peter explains that this event is the fulfillment promised in Acts 1. Go into Jerusalem and wait. Baptism of the Spirit, filling of the Spirit, whatever term we put with it, Jesus has poured out His Spirit upon His followers, just like He said He would, just as John anticipated and prophesied. Now we notice then that the baptism of the Spirit takes place here, as well as in the response to it is that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Tongues, I believe, were known languages the speaker had never spoken before, but could now miraculously communicate with people who knew that particular language. This is the natural way of reading this Greek word and understanding how tongues would have been understood normally. This miraculous phenomenon arrested the attention of festival goers from various nations. And we read in verse 5 that they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the wind, sound of a wind rushing, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. I mean, this just never happens where there's all these languages being spoken in one place. And they said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How do they know our language? These are rural guys from up north in Galilee. They're speaking in our tongue. How is it that we hear, verse 8, each one of us in his own language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, as those born Gentiles had become Jews, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were hearing their language that they did not expect to be spoken in Jerusalem. Verse 12, and all were amazed, as you might expect. They were perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So these onlookers have questions, and Peter boldly addresses them at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Appealing here to Joel 2, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days. I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor, and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, and great and magnificent day, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is that. It's not that in its fullness. There is more to come, but this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied. And now, let me say, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Let me just stop there in the middle of a sentence, so to speak. You know who this Jesus is. God has made clear through his miracles that he is Messiah. There's no question about this. You know this. He has been authenticated by these miraculous signs. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Now what is Peter doing? It's real clear to us, but he is preaching the gospel. He is declaring to them Jesus Christ crucified according to God's plan. This wasn't something that you did and messed with God's sovereign purposes. According to God's plan, but you are guilty for putting him to death. He's proclaiming that message. And at this point, has primarily centered on the historical raw facts. He came performing miracles, showing God's approval. He was God's Messiah. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Now in verses 24 through 31, as has been read earlier, Peter demonstrates that the Hebrew Scriptures anticipated Messiah's conquest of death. You maybe weren't fully tracking with this, Peter says, but... This all has been anticipated in the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus would rise from the dead. Then at verse 32, if you'll skip down there, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Are you tracking with what He's saying? Jesus chapter 1, the Spirit will come, I will pour Him out upon you. That's what happens in the first part of this chapter. And Peter says this is exactly what was prophesied. And though it's not directly mentioned here, it's exactly what Jesus told them to anticipate. He's poured out His Spirit, and that's what you're seeing and hearing. The risen, ascended Christ is alive and is acting according to prophecy. 
4, verse 34, David did not ascend into heaven. That's not what we're to draw from these texts of the, uh, of, of the Hebrew Bible. But he himself said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Prophesying of Messiah, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Messiah whom you crucified. Here, Peter provides the significance of the historical facts. The Jesus they crucified is God's Messiah and the Lord of heaven and earth, and He is right now pouring out His Spirit from heaven on these people. Now these facts would fill any rational listener in the crowd with dread fear. We killed the one that God sent to save. We put him to death, and God raised him up. Think about it. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, this is indeed how many responded. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter now stresses that what the risen, ascended Messiah is here doing and pouring out the Spirit, he will continue to do. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You too will receive this gift as you repent and identify with Christ. Repentance means to turn from our sin and embrace as Lord and Savior this Jesus who was crucified. This is who He is. This is who He has been attested to be. And repentance is responding to Him. Peter mentions two key results of those who trust in Christ. What are they? The first is the forgiveness of your sins. When you turn from your sin and you put your faith and your trust and your confidence in this Messiah, you will be forgiven of your sins. That is, you'll be washed clean of your guilt. doesn't mean you'll be perfected. But it means that your guilty standing before God will be washed away. The forgiveness of your sins. And the second result, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This isn't negotiable, and it's not, it's not a might or a possibility, or if you pay enough money, this will happen if you repent and trust Christ. So when there is a response to the message of who Jesus is and what He has done to provide forgiveness of sin, the one who responds in repentant faith to that message receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is a baptism of the Spirit that takes place as there is response to that message. That gift is this outpouring of the Spirit and the washing us clean of the guilt of sin. Peter adds, and this is significant, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise 
is also to their children. This can only mean to children who repent of their sins and trust the message of redemption in Christ. Peter clarifies that his promise is for his hearers, but it's also for subsequent generations. It's not a one-day, one-generation offer. You repent, you trust this message, and you will receive this gift, and so will all generations subsequent to you. That's his point. You'll notice here in verses 38 and 39 that there is no promise that they will speak in tongues. The disciples did speak in languages earlier that day that they'd never studied and communicated the gospel with others. And others would do so again at strategic moments in the future. They would speak in tongues. But speaking in tongues is not a necessary result of spirit baptism. Nothing is said by way of promise that these who respond will speak in tongues. Indeed, there is no indication that of the 3,000 who responded that any of them spoke in tongues. There's no mention of it here, nor is there any reference to them speaking in tongues in verses 42 through 47 where their life together is described. They broke bread from house to house. They built each other up in the faith. There's nothing said there that they went on speaking in tongues to one another throughout Jerusalem or something like that. We notice also that those who repent and trust Christ do not speak in tongues, but they are baptized. So verse 38, repent and be baptized. Now, we have to be careful here because I don't believe that he is saying baptism is utterly essential for salvation. Think the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You can well guarantee that man wasn't baptized. But baptism is the natural response of identifying with Christ publicly when I have repented and been baptized by the Spirit. So when he says that this promise is for you and your children, it can only mean children who repent, who trust the message of redemption in Christ, and therefore naturally will identify with him in baptism. So Peter clarifies again that, it's, that it pertains to subsequent generations. But to say that verse 39 promises forgiveness of sin to infants... is really just a fabrication that is nowhere supported by a single example in the rest of the New Testament. This promise is for you and for your children. That is for subsequent generations. It is for any child of any generation who repents and is baptized. That is, who identifies with Christ. With many other words, verse 40, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Aren't these glorious words? Verse 41. 
I'm so thankful it doesn't say, and the whole crowd turned and said, that guy's nuts and walked away. But what it says is, so those who received his word were baptized. They repented of their sin. They trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. And they identified with him in baptism. People are getting baptized all over the place there. Jews were baptized constantly. And there were all kinds of ritual baths all over Jerusalem that would permit thousands of people to be baptized. There were thousands of people baptized at every festival. Different kinds of ceremonial washings. But this baptism was to say, we identify with Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and pouring out His Spirit upon His people. That's a unique baptism. One that had never been known before. And those who received His Word that day were 3,000 people baptized in water as a sign that they had been baptized, as an identification with the Christ who had poured out His Spirit upon them. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to bring one particular emphasis here. I think it's good for us just to remember our birth narrative and to have that repeated to us here, to know who we are as the body of Christ. But this narrative is so important because it reveals the genesis of the church. And in the initial formation of the church, in this infancy narrative, it is vital for us to recognize the combination of Word and Spirit. We see that throughout this narrative. The message of repentant faith in Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins is absolutely vital. Peter continues to stress it. Remember the word in verse 40, and with other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Turn from your sin. Come to Christ as Savior. He's preaching this message. He's declaring it with words. And Watch this. Work with me here. It is equally important to notice the empowering, life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. The two work in combination. The Word is announced and embraced by faith, and the Holy Spirit baptizes and cleanses and enlivens the hearts of those who believe. God's revealed Word and God's animating Spirit combine to produce the spiritual rebirth of individual sinners and thereby to form them into this church, the body of Christ, here in this particular location. In a very different context, but the, 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 it, it was uh, impressive to me, this very statement is made by John Frame as he works through a theologian who's working through the writings of Paul when he says, Paul couples word and spirit as factors that are always equally present when people receive the gospel in faith. It is the word and the spirit. It's really intriguing to watch this theme as it continues to rise in the New Testament text. It is the gospel, the message, the truth about who Jesus is, and it is the operative work of the Holy Spirit to bring life to those words and to bring life to the Spirit that responds to them. Notice in 1 Thessalonians, I have a number of passages I, I want to work through here just briefly. But notice here as we have displayed these texts, 1 Thessalonians 1. 
you, we know, says Paul to this church where he brought the gospel, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That is, you are his select people. You're among his bride. How do I know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. It's both and. It came in word. I announced the gospel to you, but it came also in power and the Holy Spirit. There was true, heartfelt conviction when the word was preached to you. And so the word was utterly essential. The message of salvation must be announced accurately as Romans 10:17 says, faith comes from hearing the message about Christ. But the Holy Spirit is also necessary. Indeed, it is the Spirit who enlivens the Word and renders it spiritually transformational. Paul continues in chapter 2 and says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. I preach the Gospel, but there's more to it than that. It's more than just the message. You received it as what it really is, the living Word of God, which is at work in you. It does something. It's alive. It's not just facts on a page. It's not just getting certain principles right and knowing that I'm right about that. It is all of that. But there is a work of God that enlivens the truth in the soul. There is a response of our spirit that says, this is the truth of God. And only God can do that. It's at work in you who believe. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we've read this recently a couple of times in the last few months, but since you have been born again, sorry for the quick comment, I just got to say this, I have talked to people who claim to be Christians that said, but I'm not born again. And I just think, what are you saying? <laughs> They've apparently met some born-again Christian they don't want to be like, but listen, we need to be born again. Jesus said we're not going to heaven if we're not born again. You're not a Christian if you're not born again. Now, you may not like how some people use the term, and that doesn't mean you identify with everybody who uses it, but we have to be born again, said Jesus. You must be born again. But we are born again. We are given new life, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That Word is alive. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. It's eternal. It is infinite. It will never die. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So you were born again of a living Word. That word, 2 Peter 1.21 reveals, is not sourced in the will of man, but is born along by the Holy Spirit. He is its animation, its life. It lives because He has breathed it out. Titus 3. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the lost state. We were without Christ, without life. We were godless. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved me. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Now notice this. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Put 1 Peter together with this passage in Titus. 1 Peter emphasizes the living and abiding Word, the eternal imperishable seed that gives life. This text emphasizes the work of the Spirit. They go together. They are both essential. The Spirit washes us clean of guilt. The Spirit is poured out on us, regenerating and renewing our spirits. So, what does it all mean? Look around you. You don't have to literally, but just we need to be perceptive of one another. We should understand that this assembly was purchased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why we gather, because he did this. We should recognize that the risen Christ continues to save souls. He continues to baptize them with the Holy Spirit, washing away the guilt of sin. Jesus is going about this work right now. And we should recognize that this spiritual rebirth is the result of God's Word and Spirit combining to give us spiritual life and uniting us to the body of Christ. We need to have this sense about us. This perception of what is gathering here on the Lord's Day. This assembly then is a living display of the life-transforming work of God's Word and God's Spirit. Not everyone here And we invite and encourage and welcome in those who do not have the Word and Spirit. But for those of us who know Christ as Savior, this is a gathering of such people, and we should recognize that and celebrate that. Somebody might honestly be saying, no kidding. We got all of this. What's the significance of it? It's a wonderful truth. It's good to be reminded, and it is, and we should put deep stakes down into it. But this may seem obvious to us. There are massive numbers of self-identified Christians in local churches who entirely miss this reality. And I mean to draw judgment on no individual, but there are large swaths of self-professed Christians who do not get anything that's been said here today. We have those Christians who, first of all, go, by, go at salvation by ritual act. Now think of it. Is that word and spirit combining to regenerate the soul? It's not. It's salvation by ritual act, and especially the ritual act of infant baptism. There are vast swaths, not all, but there are vast swaths of Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists who believe they are Christian by virtue of their infant baptism. I've read their statements. It is physical baptism that makes one a Christian. 
They articulate this idea. It is salvation by ritual act, not by word and spirit. There is secondly, those self-professed Christians, where it is salvation in small increments. Not every Roman Catholic, but the official position of the Roman church is that the church parcels out small measures of grace in the sacraments. Little by little, you receive your salvation from the church who has been equipped by God to save you. Of course, there's a work of Christ there, there's a work of Mary there, there's a work of the saints there, but really the church itself parcels out to you grace so that you can be saved as you continue to ritually receive in small increments salvation grace. So salvation is gained as one participates in the Mass, in being baptized by giving money to the church and any number of other efforts. It is salvation by religious deed. And the concern that we have as a church is the Scriptures. Titus 3.5 We are saved not because of works done by us in righteousness. We're saved by the Word and Spirit. It is that which regenerates us. Thirdly, are those who pursue salvation by word alone. I don't know if, I can, if I'm overstating this, but I think that there is a, such a category. Some self-professed Christians place their hope in their assent to certain doctrinal statements. Now, they're very different than those Roman Catholics who are going to get pieces of grace through the sacraments. They're very different than those, let's say, Lutherans who are trusting in baptism for their regeneration. These are different people. They hold to their creeds and to their confessions. And they rejoice to have all of their doctrinal ducks in a row. And, they can, and, and I've, I've talked to some of these people. It is impossible to penetrate them. Because everything that you say about orthodox, true, biblical truth, they nod their head and say, yes, that's right, I believe that. Because they are being trained in word alone. They're being trained to recognize when true words from Scripture are announced. But there's no spirit. It's dead orthodoxy. True doctrine many times. But they don't know Christ in a saving way. They've never been baptized in the Spirit of God. You cannot almost get them to deny proper doctrine. But their hearts are dead. And then there is salvation by Spirit alone. We have many brothers and sisters in Christ in charismatic circles and Pentecostal circles, but some seem to be so mesmerized by spiritual experiences they attribute to the Holy Spirit, they pay insufficient heed to the gospel and to doctrinal truth. They speak in tongues, they receive prophecy, God talks to them and tells them what to do. They don't need to think much about the gospel. The evidences of salvation for them are the fact of the phenomena. God is doing miraculous, amazing things in my life. That's all I need to know. 
And they become extremely weak on the gospel. And when other people show these same kinds of evidences, they don't even ask any questions. Clearly, they're saved. They speak in tongues. Even though there's vast numbers of unbelievers who speak in tongues the very same way and the very same gibberish all over the world, but we won't say it's got to be the Spirit of God. The problem is, is so often it's not the Spirit of God. And in too many cases, such as in Oneness Pentecostals and too many Word of Faith followers, false doctrine is ingested because all that matters is evidences of the work of the Spirit. Can I add one statement here? Let's remember the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. And people might be confused. The Holy Spirit never is. And what He inspired in the text of Scripture, he never violates. There is no such thing as evidences of the Holy Spirit that are in contradiction to the truth of God's Word. It's impossible. Anywhere that the Holy Spirit's work is believed to be a display, to be on display, is a place where God's truth is revered not twisted. It is a place where the holiness of godly living is the result. Spiritual phenomena that are not directly attached to biblical truth, that do not magnify Christ for who He truly is, that do not produce godly living, are driven by a spirit. But it's not a holy one. You would be flat wrong to conclude that I'm standing here boasting about Eden Baptist Church. My every effort in all of this as we look at other strains of Christianity is to rejoice in what Jesus Christ is actually doing. And if we have a peace in that, that's just His grace. May we always affirm and constantly celebrate that we are saved by the Word and Spirit. We are a gathering to display true biblical doctrine and true salvation of those who have come to understand what the Gospel is and have been born again by this incorruptible seed. We're a body of people who are spiritually alive. We are a body formed of members who have heard the message of Christ, crucified and risen to pay the penalty of sin, who substituted His life for ours. And we are a body formed of members who have heard the message of Christ, victorious resurrection from the dead. And we're a body in whom God's Spirit has taken that Word and has transformed us by it. There is a witness of the Spirit of God that we are the children of God as we have responded to the truth of God and seen it for what it is, His truth. So that as Spirit-born, Word-transformed members of Christ's body, we then are called to display this supernatural work of God's Word and Spirit in our lives so that Christ's glory and Lordship are seen in us, in the way we relate to one another and in the way that God is changing our lives and how we are alive to the truth of God's Word. And so it will ever be for us a great concern when someone seems dead to the Word of God.
even when they know the truth of the Word of God and could ace theology tests, if there's not life in response to that Word, we're worried. In a good way, in a way that I hope we will continue to reach out and bring in and draw in, but never can we compromise on this truth, that it is the Word and Spirit that bring life. And so we labor as a church to be sure that those who join with us are truly regenerate, that they have come to genuine saving faith in Christ. And it is not a, 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 we are very happy to say, have you been born again? Have you received new spiritual life from God's Spirit in response to His Word? That means that those who come into our assembly, we ask them what you're trusting in. That's a question to say, have you really embraced the Word? And we ask them how they respond to that Word and what difference it's making in their life, which is a question about the Spirit. Have you been reborn? And I wonder what would happen if we gathered in conscious recognition of who we are and the place of God's Word and Spirit in our formation, how that may transform us as we relate to each other. Let's talk about it today. But there are some here today, you know, the simple message that you need to grasp is verse 38. As Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What you need is not more money. What you need is not for all the relationships in your life to get fixed. What you need is not for the problems to go away. What you need more than anything else in this world is the forgiveness of sin. Christ offers that, but you've got to turn to Him and trust Him. For those who have, as we witness Christ's saving grace to a lost world, we must announce the gospel. People need the Word. And we must rely in the giving of that Word on the Spirit. They need the Spirit. We can't make that happen. But we want to be accurate with the truth and rest on the work of God. And for us who know Him as Savior, may we perceive God's grace upon us. Perceive that we are a supernatural dwelling place of God's Spirit. Where would it take us? How would it change us as a church? How would we exhibit the glories of Christ as an assembly if we came to fully appreciate who we are as the body of Christ and as the temple of the living God? We were dead to sin. Now we're alive in Christ. His living word and His life-giving spirit have done this. Jesus purchased this gathering. To Him be the glory through Jesus Christ for all eternity in the church. Father, we come before You asking now in this closing prayer, as we meditate upon Your Word and seek to be changed by it, we plead for the work of the Spirit of God and for the accuracy of our understanding of the truth of Your Word. May we learn to worship in spirit and in truth. Bring to saving faith, we pray, those who are separated from Christ according to Your purposes we plead that you'd open eyes. And we plead, Lord, that 
I plead for this church and for myself, help us to perceive the combination of the Word and Spirit to form the church. Help us to get it and be transformed as we seek to honor what Jesus is doing among us. In his name we pray, amen. Please stand with me. How is the word, how is the spirit at work in your own heart? Let's just pause for a few minutes.